This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Today on Gravy, we're tucking into a platter of fried chicken. Okay, fine. It's not a platter. It's a bucket. A cardboard bucket from KFC. Okay, that's right. We didn't fry it ourselves, though we could have. And we're not the only ones buying fried chicken instead of making it at home. Not by a long shot. Around the world, Kentucky Fried Chicken is the premier representation of American fried chicken. It's one of the South's most recognizable exports. Its success abroad, much like its secret blend of 11 herbs and spices, can seem like a mystery. How did Corbin, Kentucky's Harlan Sanders take off in Beijing and beyond? And what does KFC's international success tell us about the impact of Southern companies on the world? Maybe we think of rural America as the antithesis of American capitalism. I would argue it's the exact opposite. It was the key ingredient that made some of the most advanced logistics systems that we have today. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. You're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. Ishan Takor digs into a bucket of chicken and today's story. I'm just returning from the lunchtime rush of a KFC here in Brooklyn. There were not a ton of customers coming in and out, but there was steady business. You know, when I think of popular fast food fried chicken, I think of Popeyes or Bojangles. But as I reported this episode, I was shocked to learn just how popular KFC actually still is, both here and abroad. KFC has over 25,000 restaurants worldwide. It's in 24 countries in Africa alone, many more than McDonald's. When I was combing through news clippings and video archives, There's no shortage of people going to extremes to obtain some KFC. This is Gaza, where there is no KFC. In this news clip from 2013, people used tunnels to get KFC from Egypt into Gaza for $27 a bucket. It's a dinner that does not come cheap. To understand how exactly KFC rose to global ubiquity, let's go to China, where KFC is one of the most popular brands full stop in the country. KFC's success in China is a business story, of course, about supply chains and ingenuity, but it also represents the idea of America through Southern food and how that gets exported to another place. So it goes from one store in 1987 to a $10 billion publicly traded business. It was this alluring symbol of an, of an American middle class that a lot of Chinese in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s aspired to. That's Zachary Carabell. 
He's an author, scholar, and commentator, and he ran an investment fund between the U.S. and China in the 2000s. In 2009, he wrote a book called Superfusion, which was all about how America and China became economically intertwined. The book charts the story of how U.S. multinationals like KFC shaped China just as it was entering the global economy and exiting decades of turmoil. You'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere in the world from the 1890s to the 1990s that had been more chaotically disrupted than China. That included events like the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976, when Mao Zedong purged intellectual elites and sent millions to the countryside. As China began to open up its borders to investment under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s, foreign companies smelled profits. But investing in China was still a huge gamble. If you were a multinational or an American company, the undevelopedness of the Chinese economy combined with the miasma of rules and the unwrittenness of those rules just made it really difficult to do business in China. So most people who did business in China who were foreign in the 1980s and 1990s lost a lot of money. But there was an upside. If a company felt they had nothing to lose, the untapped market was huge. And that was the position that KFC found itself in when it turned to China. You know, it was a well-respected American fast food brand that got a bit shop-worn by the 1980s. And a lot of the multinationals that first really set up in China in the 1990s and in the 2000s were companies that needed new sources of growth and new markets because they were either tapped out or had been surpassed in the United States and Europe. And, and KFC was a perfect example of that. KFC turned to an ex-employee named Tony Wang to start up its China operations. As a child, Tony fled China for Taiwan with his family and came to America for his graduate degrees. When he got a job at KFC Corporate, he pushed his higher-ups to expand further into Asia. But they did not listen to him. So he quit, and he ended up starting a successful fast food restaurant in the city of Tianjin, China. KFC eventually lured him back with a promotion. And his new job? To head up strategy on mainland China. And so Tony became the guy who opened not only the first KFC branch, but led all of KFC's expansion in China in the early 90s. Opening these branches was much more like doing a land deal. Like anybody who does a land deal anywhere in the world, or development, has to meet with local officials. Tony Wang was very good at this. You know, He met with mayors, he met with politicians. He tried to show them why embracing this and licensing these places would be good for them, good for their municipalities, good for society. KFC's first store, just off Tiananmen Square, was regal. It was three stories tall, it had 150 staff, and it cost more than a million dollars to build. It's still open, by the way. But it wasn't just the structure of the store that made it remarkable, or really the food, even though Western fast food joints were not at all common in China. That first KFC store represented the middle class. At the time, a two-piece meal cost more than an average Chinese worker made in a week. Going into that KFC was like a promise that entering the global economy could mean wealth and progress. There was 800 million people living uh, with barely enough calories not to starve mm. after the Cultural Revolution. You have to remember, like, a lot of Chinese who were entering urbanization and middle class looked to the United States as this consumer paradise. And compared to how you lived in China in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, it was a consumer paradise. 
1989, two years after KFC opened, the Tiananmen Square massacre occurred. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still, there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. The Chinese government killed thousands of people protesting for political reforms, many of them students. And KFC was right in the middle of it. One of the ironies of this is, like, until the military moves in on the student protesters in June, the student protesters would be, like, camped out in Tiananmen Square and going to KFC. And then after the military moves in, and it was then the young soldiers who were, like, going into KFC. Because, obviously, KFC didn't care one way or the other who they were serving. After the protest, KFC opened within a week, while other businesses around Tiananmen remained shut down. By staying open, even though the threat of Western sanctions on China remained, KFC sent a powerful message that it was committed to expanding on the mainland. It was prepared to weather any political storms. Within two years, the Tiananmen location was KFC's most profitable branch in the entire world. But to go from one flagship store to the thousands it has today in China, KFC got really creative about how it built out its operations. And that started with middle management. So when KFC was starting, there just weren't enough experienced managers after the Cultural Revolution. And so what KFC did, which a lot of other companies did, but they did to great effect, is they actually brought Taiwanese managers in to manage. Given the animosity today, politically at least, between China and Taiwan, this is kind of crazy. But it worked. So the Taiwanese whom KFC hired could speak Mandarin, and they became incoming managers of new branches. KFC also centralized its operations in China, moving away from the traditional franchise model it used in the States. It makes sense for KFC not only to run their stores in China, but to also create sourcing for all of them. It's, there's a lot of cost savings involved in that, and there's quality control. And just sheer amount of stuff that these branches needed meant that it was economically feasible to set up your own chicken sourcing. And then it becomes much more than just thousands of actual KFC branches. It becomes an entire logistics and management operation. I want to pause here and say, I never really thought of KFC as a lodestar of logistical excellence, at home or abroad. It's been in my mind a lot recently that KFC, a southern company that's still based in Kentucky and now part of the corporate conglomerate Yum! Brands, transformed how quickly and cheaply millions of people eat fried chicken. Yum! Brands also owns brands like Taco Bell and Pizza Hut. So I spoke with Bart Elmore, an environmental historian and associate professor of history at Ohio State University, to learn more. I don't think when we think of the history of American capitalism or global capitalism, as the South being at the center of this logistics revolution. I think we might think of Amazon and Jeff Bezos, you know, and the, and the West Coast or some Silicon Valley. When we come back, we'll learn how KFC fits the mold of other Southern companies whose reach has changed the way the world eats and shops through what Dr. Elmore calls country capitalism. For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char on their barrels, 
Every step in the bourbon making process is carefully crafted, just like Bill Samuel Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Welcome back to Gravy. So Bart recently wrote a book called Country Capitalism, which looks at the history of five firms that started in the South and became juggernauts. Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Walmart, FedEx, and Bank of America. Their success, the heart of what he calls country capitalism, was built on servicing the countryside and keeping products readily available, often at all hours of the day. That meant huge supply chains and efficient logistics operations to move products across the country. What made all of these Southern companies so good and different is that in their own way, they were all looking at rurality, if if you will, the rural countryside as an asset and as something that if you could get your products into those places, then wow, there was a lot of opportunity for money. You know, Walmart going and citing its big box stores in towns of 5,000 people. Like, nobody does that. People forget that these firms had strong Southern roots and they were global from the outset. Their success hinged on the global South acting as both a supplier and a market for their goods and services. Delta Airlines, for instance, is named after the Mississippi Delta and started as a crop dusting firm to rid fields of the boll weevil pest in the American South and eventually in South America. Coca-Cola, of course, sourced its coca leaves and sugarcane from the global South. This is what made the Southern products so amazing was, was the production and the connectivity of everyone else around the world. I think KFC is a model here too, but for these other companies especially, they're not really extracting things from the South so much as shipping things in and shipping things out. Delta, you know, Coca-Cola, all these ingredients are coming from around the world. And Bart argues that rural America was the key to success to these multinationals, not a hindrance. It turns out that trying to figure out how to get things in small rural communities leads to some of the biggest business innovations of our time. And I think KFC is in that same vein in so many ways. KFC became popular in America by being available off the side of the road and even in gas stations. But in China, KFC had to flip the model that brought it American success by first moving product into urban centers before expanding to more rural communities. KFC was successful because of its logistical know-how in America, but there was also one last big change that turbocharged KFC's operations in China, which still reverberates today. It was a policy announcement from President Bill Clinton. Good afternoon. Today I would like to announce a series of important decisions regarding the United States policy toward China. I have decided that the United States should renew most favored nation trading status toward China. I am moving to de-link human rights from the annual extension, an approach that I believe will make it more likely that China will play a responsible role, both at home and abroad. At the time, in May 1994, trade between China and the U.S. was increasing rapidly every year. After Tiananmen, policymakers were trying to figure out how hard to squeeze China and whether that would affect U.S. businesses. Clinton's announcement meant that those businesses had nothing to worry about. Most trade would continue, and human rights reforms would be pursued by other measures. 
And KFC, well, it's not a stretch to say that they actually celebrated. This announcement dovetailed with the opening of KFC's 9,000th store in Shanghai, which was a glitzy affair. There's an area of Shanghai called the Bund, and the Bund is this waterfront set of grand buildings, which is like Fifth Avenue or the Champs d'Elysees, like that kind of mm. place, Piccadilly Square. A hundred Chinese children are dressed in Colonel Sanders uniforms, and they go into the restaurant, they take a boat ride, more speeches, dance performance, kids in chicken costumes do some sort of dance with the Shanghai Symphony. And the Shanghai branch, like the Tiananmen branch before it, was meant to be exclusive, cool, and luxurious. Opening the branch was like opening a Cartier jewelry store. KFC was selling an upper-class product, which just happened to be fried chicken. The president of KFC flies over and announces as he's opening the branch, the door to China is open wider. Now U.S. firms can go full speed in China by permanently delinking human rights and U.S. economic investment, President Clinton has removed uncertainty from our China business. We do not have to worry about the potential for deteriorating relations between China and the U.S. So, of course, that didn't age well. Today, every U.S. business in China is worried about sanctions, tariffs, and declining relations. But at the time, buoyed by optimism, KFC announced it was going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to build dozens of new China stores by 1998. According to press reports at the time, KFC marked China as its most promising investment. By the mid-2010s, half of all operating profit around the world from Yum! Brands came from China. You know, success led to success led to success, and suddenly KFC by the 90s and certainly by the early 2000s is this wildly successful brand in China that's hip and cool. When Yum China spun off from Yum Brands in 2016 for $10 billion, the brand itself had changed into a widely recognizable product, no longer a novelty. But that was partly because China itself had changed. The economy had prospered. Consumer products had flooded the market. Millions of Chinese were lifted out of poverty and into the middle class. For most Chinese, KFC is just a, it's a Chinese fast food place in China. Like, it's, it's no longer aspirational in the same way. It doesn't necessarily represent the American middle class. It's just part of the landscape of fast food in China, which means it has lost a lot of its luster. It doesn't represent the United States anymore. It's kind of become a domestic brand. When we consider KFC's origins, its success in China, including its chameleon-like ability to become a Chinese brand, seems even more improbable. But that global ubiquity, it came at a price. Bart's scholarship is about acknowledging the role that Southern firms played in our global economy and how they, to use his words, ushered in a logistics revolution. But that acknowledgement is not just to celebrate those successes. It is to be clear-eyed about the negative effects and the social environment those firms operated in. All these companies are emerging while Jim Crow is going on, <laughs> while the most retrograde social institutions of our time exist. In other words, I think if we teach the history of the American South as this kind of economic backwater, it prevents us from seeing that you can have tremendous economic booms and progress 
and success and find in fact defining our national economy at the same time that you have these social ills that are so iniquitous and so evil and so wrong these firms today operate in a system that prioritizes shareholder value above all else the exact price of ubiquity and unchecked growth which is good for shareholders is that kfc's supply chains create huge greenhouse gas emissions and its poultry suppliers have been cited for animal cruelty and the flip side of starting a business in china in the 80s where there were no rules is that there were also no stringent environmental or labor standards to be clear Zachary said the living standards of early KFC China employees were certainly better than their parents who had survived the labor fields of the cultural revolution. For Bart, getting the economic history of the American South right is a step towards addressing the huge cost to the planet that unbridled economic growth has had. And if we do that, I think we do a better job of combating this idea that the solution to the nation's problems social ills environmental issues is just to lop off as some say the american south from the rest of the country to just let them be the confederacy they wanted to be and move on we are all embedded in this and that in and of itself requires us whether we're in california listening to this or we're in maine to see that that this is a story of us not a story of them. And I think we live in a time right now where it's very easy for us to say, "Ah, that backwards place." Because I think fixing the south is fixing the nation, fixing the globe. You you have to do both simultaneously. Gravy was reported and produced by Katie Jane Fernelius and Ishan Takor. Katie Jane is a journalist and radio producer based in New Orleans. Her work interrogates institutions and the stories they tell. Ishan is a multimedia producer and investigative journalist based in Brooklyn. His work has been featured in The City, Full Frontal with Samantha B, and Al Jazeera. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Want to learn more about country capitalism? Join us for the SFA's Fall Symposium, October 20th and 21st, here in Oxford, Mississippi. Together, we'll ask the question, where is the South? You'll hear from a roster of engaging speakers like Dr. Elmore, plus you'll eat and drink well, very well. Tickets go on sale August 3rd. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more. While you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around. Gravy is delighted to be a part of APT Podcast Studios.